Today, we're going to be talking about hatred as a major theme that communism takes advantage of. And we're going to be talking about how communism seeks to intentionally control men's minds, knowing that it is necessary for their political advantage. And finally, we're going to be talking about historical determinism and how it is a deal made by men with the devil. All this and more on today's podcast. You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. If you are looking for a place to read and grow your intellectual life, welcome. Welcome to the Psalmist Corner Book Club. Got a couple announcements for you. We are having a book giveaway, another one here. The next book we are going to be doing for the month of October through November is Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. We are going to do a giveaway. This one's a little bit different. We really want to start utilizing the emails uh, between you and us to get feedback on the podcast. So make sure that you send us an email with two things. One, what your favorite episode was that we've done so far. It doesn't have to be, you know, to be exact. You can just kind of generally describe it. Just tell us which one you liked so far and why. And the first one to send us an email with this content is going to be given a free copy hardback of Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl R. Truman. That is our next book for the book club. So make sure that you send an email to mail, M-A-I-L, at solomonscorner.com. Once again, that's mail at solomonscorner.com telling us what your favorite episode is and why. The first one to do this, so first come, first serve, the first one to do this will be given a copy of Rise and Triumph of, of the Modern Self, and we will send that to you and let you know via email. Either Lindsay or myself will let you know. And so make sure you send that in to mail at solomonscorner.com to get your free copy of the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. We only have one copy, so first come, first serve. So first one to send that email in gets it. We will announce the winner next week. So the second thing is we have podcast reviews. So we are going to read a podcast review. Please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do that, it will be read on the air. Eventually, we are going through these and letting you know why everybody is listening to the hottest, most unknown podcast on the internet, Solomon's Corner. This one is from Ken and Amy. They say, this duo is a powerhouse who has been through a thing or two. Sounds like a personal friend of mine. And their lives are genuine and true to their beliefs. Wow, really personal. Such a fresh voice that I believe is needed. Thank you. Daniel has challenged me for years. Oh, yeah, definitely one of my friends. (laughs) I'll be tuning in for every episode. As a pastor of a local church, this is an area I seek to grow in. Thank you, Ken and Amy. I appreciate that and love you guys as well. All right, moving on. And the next one we'll do next week. So if you haven't left a review on podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts, please do so. Make sure it's five stars. Not one star. This isn't golf. Make sure it's five stars. More points is better. And write your review so that we can see what you like about our podcast so we can keep making it better. Today, we are going to be talking about Gamma. Gamma is a friend of Miwosh. And this chapter, I think, is the most relevant chapter for Americans in the West, or really, I guess, Westerners in general, because we really have these competing voices of fascism, or uh, we don't call it communism, but it, it really is a kind of socialist communist ideology that's coming in And so on the one hand, we see this very, very hyper, hyper patriotism that's happening in Poland because they're responding to the fascists that are coming through. But then you have this overarching globalist agenda of communism at the time, not the not the 
globalist agenda that you might think of today, but this communist globalism from the Soviet Union coming into Poland. So when you when you see this uh, transpiring, it's very you'll, you'll see a lot of words that are easy to interpret and read into our own political dialogue because they're the same terms. So they'll use the term like patriots today, or they'll use nationalism or leftism. Like there's a lot of different ideas in this chapter that, at least in in name sound a lot like our time. And so it's, it, there's a lot of lessons to just glean from this chapter in general. It's also not as dark as the previous chapter uh, with Delta. That one was, uh, or uh, with Beta, uh, that was a that was a dark, dark chapter, probably one of the darkest chapters I've read on communism. Gamma is not nearly as dark. And I think Gamma is much more relevant for our time. Gamma is described as a slave of history. He is bound to his past. He's made bad choices. He had an accident as a kid that Miwosh says fills him with guilt. And one of the hallmarks of communism or revolution is a starting point of shame for the revolution. And so Gamma feels this guilt and this overwhelming shame. And he's also someone that Miwosh kind of doesn't really get along with very well. They find themselves starting off in a small university town, and they're kind of debating back and forth. Gamma is definitely described as a racist, and Miwosh oftentimes pushes back. And what happens is that as the Soviets start to come into Poland, Gamma is not really appreciated by the the fascists that are in Poland prior to this. And there is actually a trial, and Gamma goes through this trial for his communist ideas, and Gamma finds himself in this providential moment, so to speak, that the communists have actually won, and now everything he was sacrificing for was worth it. But he, like so many others, at the end of his time, starts to find that communism does not offer the fulfillment it promises. It's always a revolution. You're always supposed to be doing better. There is no forgiveness for your past. There is nothing. And so in this sense, Gamma is a slave to history. And so Miwosh describes this at the end of the chapter, and we'll come back to this at the end of this episode. One cannot envy this man his choice. Looking at his country, he knows that an ever greater dose of suffering awaits its people. Looking at himself, he knows that not one word he pronounces is his own. I am a liar, he thinks, and makes historical determinism responsible for his lies. Sometimes he is haunted by the thought that the devil to whom men sell their souls owes his might to men themselves, and that the determinism of history is a creation of human brains. Gamma finds himself locked into this historical determinism that's been constructed by the people around him. It's not that he can break out or that he can stand up against this, as we'll see, but that he believes that this is ultimately a determinism that is created by men, or at least this is what Miwosh thinks of his friend Gamma, that Gamma has found himself enslaved to a master that he hates, but he continues to go along anyway. And so there's a lot of things in this chapter that highlight the naivety of the West on communism. But the first thing we need to highlight that is really relevant to us today is hatred. And we talked a little bit about this in the last episode on the book club, but this one, Miwosh really 
goes in deep on the hatred that was in the city. And he says here, In spite of everything, the entire country was gripped by a single emotion, hatred. Peasants receiving land, hated. Workers and office employees joining the party, hated. Socialists participating nominally in the government, hated. Writers endeavoring to get their manuscripts published, hated. This was not their own government. It owed its existence to an alien army. The nuptial bed prepared for the wedding of the government with the nation was decked with national symbols and flags, but from beneath that bed protruded the boots of an NKVD agent. The NKVD was the secret police. So what he is talking about here is very reminiscent of Star Wars. I don't mean to tie it to something so pop culture, and I'm sure that if any academics actually listen to this podcast ever, I'm sure that they will judge me hard for this, in which case I will say, go start your own podcast and make it more academic. But when you read this, you can't help but think of Senator Palpatine saying, yes, let the hatred flow through you, you know. And this is what the communists ultimately are doing. Communism, as you read The Captain Mind, comes in, and it's not that they're lying to you. They are telling you a truth about history. They're pointing out that, hey, you know what? You're actually not as rich as that person. Hey, you know what? America actually did some bad things to you because you were black. Hey, you know what? Christians really treated the gay community pretty bad, and that's why you're poor. That's why you don't have what you want. In fact, you know what? We're actually for freedom and democracy, but you don't have those things. You know how I know you don't have those things? Because of your history. Because if you had freedom and democracy, you would actually be in a much better position. And are you in a good position? Oh, no, you're not because of where you are socioeconomically. It's not because of your decisions. It's because of history that this has caused so many problems in your life. And so on page 163, we see this explicitly stated by Miłosz. He says, Not too much pressure was exerted, again by the government. No great demands were made on anyone. National flags flew in the cities, and the arrests of members of the home army were carried out quietly. There was a determined effort to grant sufficient outlets for patriotic sentiment. The catchwords were freedom and democracy. Following Lenin's tactics, the government proclaimed a division of the landed estates among the peasants. Whoever dared to speak of collectives at that time was punished as an enemy of the people for spreading alarm and slandering the government. So whenever people talk about communism coming into a country, they often talk about seizing the means of production, taking everybody's land and redistributing it, and totalitarian efforts and all that kind of stuff. That all happens, but there has to be a slow progression that is intentional and known by its leaders. Now, you might think that this sounds conspiratorial, but anyone who denies conspiracy theories, and I'm not talking about things like there's chips in the vaccine or any of that kind of stuff, things that are unfalsifiable for you or me because we're not in those fields. You can look at those theories, you can watch those theories, you can even meditate on those theories if you want. I don't recommend it, but that's not the conspiracy theory we're talking about. When we talk about conspiracy theories, we're talking about people motivated by self-interest making illegal deals with each other behind closed doors. That's what we're talking about. They're doing things because, not because they want to like turn you into, you know, uh, an alien or they want to do some sort of, you know, weird government takeover or something like that. It's because they see self-interest as their primary goal. 
which is why we can't just say, well, the free market's going to take care of it. A lot of people who have been justifying their apathy about what's going on in the culture will oftentimes say, well, the free market will correct, the free market will correct, the free market will correct. But a free market without metaphysical or philosophical objective values of the good will just devolve into might makes right. And eventually, that turns into communism. So the the idea that the free market just awards you for being virtuous. Or how about charitable? How does the free market award charity? The only reason why you even are incentivized to give some sort of charitable donation in America is because it recognizes that it's a good thing for people to donate their money. But you don't get anything back in return for that except for a good feeling. And imagine if you were in a poor country like, how in the world does it help to give the only meal you have, if it's one a day, to somebody who's starving to death? That, that The free market does not correct for these kinds of things. There has to be another element, and mainly it's religion and virtue, that helps us understand what is the good. What does it mean to be good as a religious person? And the virtue aspect philosophically comes in, well, what does it mean to just be a good human being? And how you answer those those questions is going to be part of any sort of free market system that exists and the the market will reward whatever the culture says is virtuous and whatever it says is good so we can't just say well you know the free market's going to fix all this stuff especially when communism is going to come in and it's going to attempt to control language it's going to attempt to do this and it uses catchwords and it uses things intentionally that you believe means something, but for them it means something very different. And they do this because they don't want you to freak out. And so the communists in Poland are letting you come in and say, yeah, you have freedom, you can do this, you have democracy, you can do this, you can do all those kinds of things. You just can't talk about any of this other stuff. If you talk about that, we're going to throw you in jail. Now this has different forms that it manifests under. It doesn't manifest the same way in every communist culture. And if there's one big problem in the way that people think today is they're so scared of being considered a conspiracy theorist like the QAnons and the, you know, the vaccine has microchips in it kind of people that they completely jump to the other conclusion and say, well, our government would never do anything bad. But the moment you crack open a history book, and I have one, The History of Modern Times by, I think it's Paul Johnson. Oh, there it is. Modern Times by Paul Johnson. And, you know, this isn't some fundamentalist Christian author or anything like that. I don't even know what his religious beliefs are. But in the first 75 pages, he talks about all the conspiracies between European governments that ended up leading to World War I. So the only reason why we know about that, by the way, is because Lenin apparently exposed the whole thing after the Red Revolution in 1917. And this is in the first 75 pages of his history. So it's not like you have to go digging super deep in order to find that governments collude and not necessarily in the best interest of their people, but in the best interest of their politicians or their businesses or whatever it is. Communism comes in and takes advantage of this fact, and they use the catchwords of the time of what people are interested in. Keep in mind, Poland was occupied by Nazi Germany. So one of the things that the communists could not do is say, hey, guess what? Just swap out Nazism for communism. We're going to do the same thing to them, but worse. Same thing as the Nazis did, but worse. That's not what communism can do. They have to come in and they have to promise something in the name of democracy and freedom. And what we usually call this is a lie. So communists are lying through their teeth. They know that this is the case. And you can see this in our own time as they try to control language. That's how they do this. They're using our terms in order to control our language. And so this is why this 
particular chapter is very, very relevant to the situations that we find ourselves in today. And so you can see in our cultural revolutions that are happening is you can't say anything that's racially offensive. You can you have freedom of speech. You have the freedom to say whatever you want. But you you don't want to be a jerk. So if if you say something like, you know, white people in the country don't have as much opportunity or resources or the latest one is Jordan Peterson is a hero for the incel community and I just learned what that means. It means involuntarily celibate community, meaning loser men who can't find a girl and can't find a job. And oftentimes these guys are depressed. If you decide to say, yeah, you know, maybe those guys need to be encouraged. Maybe those guys need someone to say, hey, it's a good thing that you're a man. Hey, it's a good thing that you have these masculine qualities and that men are needed in society to be protectors and to take care of women and to take care of children and to put their life on the line in their jobs and in their work, and in their service to their country. And that is a uniquely masculine thing. Just like women are uniquely fitted to give birth, men are uniquely fitted to be protectors and caregivers and strong. And they have these virtues. If you say any of that, if you say, actually, it's a good thing for a man to, to get angry every now and then about evil, well, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, not a, that's not a quality of the fruit of the Spirit. You're supposed to just be patient all the time, meek and mild. Well, you know, Jesus did flip tables, so there's obviously some level at which it's an exception, and anybody who preaches about Paul will also tell you he wasn't exactly somebody that was soft, meek, and mild. I've never heard a pastor say, you know, Paul is just a real nice guy. You know, you just want to have him over for a cup of tea and cry on his shoulder. You know, I've never heard anyone describe Paul that way. He's almost like, Peter, you're making a mistake, and Peter goes, "Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, and he's like, snap out of it, man! You know, that's what I feel like Paul is like. But the point is, is that In this controlling of language, this idea of pronouns or racial language or what you can say, everybody will tell you, oh, you've got freedom. But then they'll they'll turn it on its head as soon as you say, yeah, you know, I think that maybe Black Lives Matter is a racist organization. Oh, you're going to lose your job. Or I think that it's wrong to force people to display their pronouns at work or to even imply that they should display their pronouns at work. Oh, you must be a, a transphobe. You know, you're free to say what you want. You just can't say that. And this is exactly what happened in Poland. It's just a different thing. They weren't allowed to talk about the settlements or the communes. They would get in jail or get in trouble or get thrown in jail. You're not allowed to talk about pro-life stuff anymore or else you might have a visit from the FBI, which just happened last week. So the, the reality is, is that we're seeing a lot of the themes that are coming in and you say, well, you know, it's not like it's, they're that intentional. Oh, really? Well, let's look at page 161 right in the middle of the page. After two months of battle, the Germans were masters of the ruins of the city, but communist intellectuals had too much work before them to have time to brood over the misfortunes of Warsaw. First of all, they had to set the printing presses in motion. Why did they put the printing motions, p- printing presses into motion? Well, let's, let's hear about it. They put the printing presses into motion because communism recognizes that the rule over men's minds is the key to rule over an entire country. The word is the cornerstone of this system. Gamma became one of the chief press organizers in the city of Lublin. So, the word is most essential to communism, and it is most essential also in freedom, and I don't think that it's any coincidence that at least in terms of name, at least in terms of name, or by name alone, 
that when Miloš says communism recognizes the word is the cornerstone of controlling a civilization, when we talk about words in the Christian faith, we recognize that they actually have meaning. They're not just frivolous. They're not just accidental. They, they, they convey something. They're vehicles of, for the, the concepts that are true and redeeming. And communism sees the same thing. They understand that a civilization is built on words. And if they control that, they control the civilization. They also recognize that religion is built on words. And if they control the words, they control the religion. And they also understand that you are a product of your society and that you have to have money and you have to have material things. And so they understand that you're also a product of the production and economy in society. But you can't do economy or you can't do production unless you all share a certain language. But the point is, when it comes to uh, the word, communism understands that the word is the basis for controlling men's minds. And that sounds crazy. And again, if people hadn't actually survived this stuff, I would say it was crazy too. But if we're going to actually listen to victims of, for example, race or racism, victims of racism or victims of sexual discrimination or victims of toxic masculinity, or any of those kinds of things. Shouldn't we also listen to the victims of communism and learn those lessons to make sure that we can hold on to the truth of what oppressors did to people in the past, but also understand how communism takes that fact and then weaponizes it in order to create a revolution? When we consider it in those terms, then all of a sudden it's not quite so far-fetched to see, well, why does the government care so much about what pronouns I use? Well, because if you don't use them, they can take you out of the game. They don't actually care about the transgender community. They just see them as a cudgel that they can use. They can say, we love the transgender community. Well, of course they do. You know why? Because as soon as somebody doesn't use the pronoun, they're able to take them out of their political system. They're able to silence them and remove them from the political discourse. And in silencing them, they remove them from existence in the public square. And in doing that, they are no longer afforded the privileges that everybody else gets and eventually this leads to extermination. And that's just that doesn't mean that's where we're going necessarily as in a country like America. But there have been plenty of writers who have said it can happen here. There's literally a book that's called It It Can Happen Here. I think oh, it, can't it Can't Happen Here, which is a play on words because the whole book is about it happening here. It was a fictional book. And in that book, he actually said it was the who is who? Sinclair Lewis is the one who wrote that. So. This isn't, in 1984, why did they write this book if they thought that America was just immune to this? No country is immune to communism. And the, the biggest conspiracy or the biggest lie that Americans believe is that the most powerful country will not co produce the most corrupt people. It, you talk to any Christian in America and you say, well, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And they'll say, yes, yes, okay, well, who's the most powerful country ever to exist. Well, it's America. Well, then obviously the people who are most likely to be the most corrupted are going to be th the most successful Americans. That doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to be that way. But is it any surprise that we're seeing big tech, the most powerful human beings in the history of humanity, the owners of those companies, wielding power in such a way as to silence their opposition who ha are helpless to actually defend themselves against this? And why would they do that? Because ultimately, words do matter. Your words matter. The books you decide to read, the words you decide to ingest actually matter. And I'm not talking about swear words. I'm talking about words 
do matter in terms of how they convey ideas. And communism knows this, but Americans are ignorant to this. And so when we read about Gamma, he is a great example of the naivety of Westerners and how they approach communism. And we have to recognize also that the psychological state of the Polish people in this country was one in which they were completely demoralized. They felt like their actions didn't matter at all. So if we keep going on page 163, so keep in mind they understand they've, they've owned the printing presses and they've decided that you know they're going to control the, the word. When we look at page 163, we see this description of, of Poland. The first and most important maxim was not to frighten people. It was to appear liberal, helpful, and to give men an opportunity to earn a living while posing only minimal demands. Most people were not ready for a diamat. Their mentality still resembled that of the fools in the West. It would be a criminal mistake to create points of psychological resistance. The process of re-education had to be gradual and imperceptible. So again, this is this gradual effect happening on the people. And now we skip up to 167. So what is this effect? This was indeed a peculiar revolution. There was not even a shadow of revolutionary dynamics in it. It was carried out entirely by official decree. The intellectuals who had spent the war in Poland were particularly sensitive to the temper of the country. The war is World War II, by the way. Gamma and his friends glibly ascribed the mood of the people to a survival of bourgeoisie consciousness, but this formula failed to encompass the truth. Here's the truth. The masses felt that nothing depended on them and that nothing ever would. Only mental opposition was possible, and the intellectuals, at least the majority of them, felt very deeply that this was their duty. By publishing articles and books, they satisfied the fishermen, the fishermen being the communists. The fish swallowed the bait, and as we know, when that happens, one should slacken the line. The line remained slack, and until the fishermen resolved to pull out the fish, certain valuable cultural activities went on that were impossible in such countries, for example, as the Baltic states, which were directly incorporated into the Union. The question was how long this state of affairs could continue. It might easily last 5, 10, or even 15 years. This was, only, this was the only game that was possible. The West did not count, and the political immigration mattered even less. In closing, one of the things that we see here is, again, to recap, the, this hatred is the basis for communism. They try to pit you against each other, and that's what's happening right now in our country. The second thing that happens is they try to control the word. And then they smuggle in communist ideas under terms that you're used to, like freedom and democracy. You will hear all of these things touted in our country right now from the left and the right, but both are ultimately seeking a large swath of power. The third thing is that they know that this is to control men's minds. And so the question becomes, how do we resist this, this control of history, that this, this ability that communism has to come in redefine terms, punish those who don't agree with their definition, and then ultimately form a system of punishment for those who do not comply, especially when it becomes dangerous not to comply. To lose your job sucks. That's really bad. But here, people are actually getting killed for what they do. So, so what do we do? One of the things that Miwosh says is mental opposition was the only thing that was possible. Now, I don't think that that is the only thing possible today. We still have a lot of freedom in this country that we have to exercise. And as we talked earlier, one of the things Miwosh says is that we need to actually be aware of that as Christians, because if we don't, then obviously Christianity doesn't realize what it has. 
But mental opposition is one of the best ways for you to actually resist communism or to resist leftism in this case. And leftism is, is a communist ideology. They, they've explicitly said this by some of their grassroots movements like BLM. So that's what we are talking about. And, and they are the ones who hold the institutions of power. If you don't believe me, just go on LinkedIn and say a man is a woman and uh, let me know where you plan to work next. So what we mean by mental opposition is number one, read books that you're not supposed to read. That means maybe reading some Ben Shapiro or maybe reading some Thomas Aquinas or reading some Aristotle or reading some books that you're not supposed to read. That's one of the things we try to do on this book club. You should probably read some Jordan Peterson. Whenever you see them coming after somebody, go buy their book. I don't care who they are. As soon as they go and, and come after that person, go buy their book. Find out what they think because those are the people we need to support. But the number two thing and one of the things that we are trying to start here is an e-store that's going to actually give you some of these material tools to allow you to mentally, to, to stand strong mentally in your private life. And so one of those things is writing your ideas somewhere that is not digital. This sounds weird, but I can say as someone who has been writing my thoughts, not my, not, not what happened today, not dear diary, today I went to work, but writing your ideas and writing what you believe and writing about why so-and-so is wrong because they told you this and writing about how you thought you were wrong about this idea or something, something along those lines. Maybe to start with, you say, what is freedom? What is democracy? And write out your own ideas. Who knows? Maybe you're a communist. Maybe you're a libertarian. Maybe you're just somebody who has some really good ideas that you need to know first before you go and tell other people. The reason why it's important for this not to be on a computer is to make sure that you're in a place where you know that it's just you and your ideas. And so you get a nice pen, you get a good journal, and you write in those books and you treasure that and you tear for it and you make sure that that pen and that journal are something that you keep sacred. That's what I do for these podcasts. I write down my ideas in my in my journal with my pen, and then that becomes the show notes for this for this episode. And then the third thing is is by supporting public figures whose very existence embodies what you intend to resist. That could be subscribing to this podcast. You could leave a review. You could do that. Or for those that are making a difference, like the Daily Wire, and I have no problem pumping the Daily Wire, especially when they're going and doing things that are going to overturn a lot of this transgender nonsense, like transgender surgeries and exposing things and getting politically active and standing for what the truth actually is. Yes, it's going to be messy. Yes, people's feelings are going to get hurt. But in the end, if we don't stand for these things in the public, if we don't make sure that we fight for our spots in the public square, and if we don't support those people who have made the sacrifice to fight for our existence in the public square, a lot worse things are going to happen to very, very good people, including those good people who are transgender, LGBTQ, race, ethnicity, whatever you want to say. Because once the totalitarian regime takes place in a country, and every country can have this happen, no one is immune to this. So your reaction shouldn't be, well, it's not going to happen here. It could never happen here. Well, the, that's just naive. And, and very, very ignorant of what can happen in a society and in a culture. So make sure that you take time to think about how you can stand in mental opposition or mental resistance in your private life, because that's the life that eventually bleeds out into the public. When you start to write your own ideas, when you start to read books, when you start to engage in content that you're not supposed to engage, with, engage in, you become a rebel for truth. 
And that is something that we have to recognize. It doesn't mean that we're not at peace with people. It just means that we are willing to be courageous in the ideas that we believe. And we first and foremost have to know what we believe. And a very, very quick way to shine a light on what you believe is to use what Jordan Peterson says, your pen of light, and write what you think and what you believe and fight yourself on those ideas. No one else needs to see those things. No one else needs to know you wrote them. And no one else can because they're just in a journal that's between you, God, and your soul. And in doing that, in writing those ideas out, in contemplating the big ideas of life, you are taking a stand against these ideas. And in doing that, you might just be preparing yourself to take a stand publicly, not just privately. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for our next one. That'll be coming out next week. Also, we're going to be moving the book club to the long-form podcast. So for those that enjoy this book club segment, we are going to keep doing it. It's going to be in the episode, the long-form episodes that happen once a week that drop on Fridays. It'll be a segment that we do and hopefully summarize things a little bit better and make them a little more concise for you guys uh, in that format. So thank you for joining me for this session on Miwosh. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that you're ready for Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. In the meantime keep thinking.